Okay. Fine. <coughs> so we were discussing that the previous method of contemplating the greatness of God is not necessarily accessible to all people at all times. And yet it is still true that everybody can um, observe and practice all the commandments. Again, observe is the, um, the idea of shmira of the negative commandments and um, practice being the, the idea of asiyah, the positive commandments. And we spoke about how negative commandments is something you actually actively are involved in. Because then remember, how are we actively involved in observing the negative commandments? How do you do that? What? By guarding, right? By being careful and being cautious, right? Which is a proactive approach to life. And that can be motivated by um, proper love and awe of God, even to the point um, that it's um, in the depths of the person's heart with true sincerity, right? Meaning not just this kind of more just personal conviction, but actually with, with a real passionate um, sense of love and fear of Hashem. Okay. So the idea being here is that ironically, this way, which is being brought up for the seemingly less spiritually qualified amongst us, right, who the contemplation approach is not going to work, is actually can be more effective because it, he promises um, tr- love and fear with true sincerity. Right? Not merely just that kind of personal conviction that we spoke about at the, at the contemplation. Okay, now, I want to just pause and talk about this idea. There, is a, there are certain ideas, which I'm not going to say are unique to Hasidus, but they are... You cannot appreciate Hasidus without these ideas. There are certain ideas that... And very often, they are... These ideas really, you know, they, they, they're... You might call them a Hasidic way of thinking, but it doesn't mean they're unique to Hasidus. One of them is as follows. There tends to be a pretty standard way of thinking that we, we think of things in hierarchies, right? So if I have two approaches, let's say, I don't know, I have two courses. One course, only the elite are able to do successfully. And the other course, basically anybody can do successfully, okay? So one is available, one is available and accessible to everybody. And one course, right, only the top, the elite, the, the most academically gifted, whatever, are going to be able to succeed in that course, yeah? Given that information, that information alone, what would you assume in terms of what is achieved in each course? Which course is, has it, has, is achieving something greater? The more selective elite course or the more open democratic course? Right, that's how you think it goes, right? There's something that requires... Um, more preconditions to be met <coughs> probably is achieving something more profound. <coughs> if that's how you intuitively think, you are not thinking like a chassid. Because from a Hasidic point of view, if something is able to appre- if something is able to reach a broad spectrum of people, what does that say about that thing? I mean, it could just say that it's shallow and superficial, right? But what else could it mean? How could something reach a broad spectrum of people without just saying it's shallow and superficial? It's more like spread out. It's more 
the people are so different and not everybody's so capable. So how is it? Because at the essence, no one's shallow. What? At the essence, no one is shallow. Ah, right. The idea is something which is more essential, right? It, it resonates with everybody. Whereas something that is not so essential, right? And so we could say that the, the fact that something reaches a broader spectrum of people shows that it's more essential, it's more fundamental, it's more infinite, and therefore it actually is more profound and achieves much more. So a Hasidic way of saying is like this. Okay. I have two things. I have something that only a select few people can do and something that everybody can do. For the Hasidic way of saying, well, the thing that everybody can do is probably the more profound, truer, deeper thing because it's fundamental, essential, and unlimited. Whereas the thing that only a few people can do, it's much more limited. It's much more constrained. It doesn't, it, it's much more sensitive in its ability to, 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 to be present in a person's life and therefore... It has a kind of shallowness to it that might not be evident. Now, that really inverts how you think about a lot of things, right? So let's take, for instance, just let's take the two basic things just to illustrate this idea. Physical performance of mitzvahs, spiritual awareness. Which one is broadly accessible to everybody and which one is really not? Right, everybody can do mitzvahs. Spiritual awareness is, you know, as you go higher in spiritual awareness, it becomes more and more of a select group, right? Now, the non-Hasidic way of thinking would therefore tell you that spiritual awareness is greater. greater. But the Hasidic way of thinking would say, well, probably if anybody can do mitzvahs, that is because mitzvahs are tapping into something essential, fundamental, and infinite. And maybe we just don't appreciate it, but they're actually more profound than spiritual awareness. Do you see how that's going to flip a lot of ways of thinking? Okay. To be clear, could something be applicable to everybody just because it really is just shallow and superficial? Yes, that, that could also be true, right? The Chesigwe thing is not saying it necessarily is the case because something, you know, you know, being lazy is something anybody can do. That's not because it's essentially fundamental and infinite to be lazy. It's just like, it's easier. So now, if I have two spiritual paths of developing love and fear of God, one requires certain conditions that not everybody can meet, and one is accessible to every Jew, what does that tell me about the two? That from a Hasidic point of view, the one that's accessible to every Jew is actually tapping into something much more deeper, truer, and fundamental, something more infinite, and therefore is actually achieving something more profound. Raising the question, why would anybody bother with the other approach? If the thing that's accessible to everybody is actually tapping into something deeper and more profound... It's a higher level, the other approach? The other approach would saying it's not a higher level, it's, it's a lower... If it was a higher level, it would be accessible to everybody. Because the essential aspect isn't always so evident? So, there's, so the, the answer to this question is that it's a question, it's a good question, and from a Hasidic point of view, it needs an answer, and there's often more than one answer to the question. I'm not going to... In other words, one of the consequences of a Hasidic point of view is you actually start to start justifying the more selective, elitist type of things. Because you're saying the thing that anybody can tap into, that's the infinite thing, that's the fundamental thing, that's the essential thing. And if I have that, then why do I even bother with the stuff that not everybody can do, the stuff that's actually just fundamentally more limited? Why does that, how does that contribute anything above and beyond? Once I have the essential core thing, why do I need anything else? By the way, the altar later on in time even asks this question. If I remember correctly, it's in the end of chapter 44. He asks if you can tap into 
this deeper, truer kind of love that's essential to every Jew, as we're going to talk about, then why even bother contemplate the greatness of God? Like, what, what, what does it gain you if you're, you know, you're tapped into something more fundamental? And he has an answer. But I, I, what I, I care more that you appreciate that from this point of view, it's a, it's a genuine question. Okay, so now we're going to take this idea and we're going to make an observation. Everybody can learn Torah, right? What's the level of Torah learning that anybody can do? The all phase, yeah. Just, you know, the basic, just read the text, look at the letters, right? Now, from a Hasidic point of view, what does that mean about that letter? The letter of just the basic, just the actual letters on the page. It's the deepest, most infinite, truest. Um, and once you appreciate that, what question do you know have for yourself? Why should I learn anything else? Yeah, why don't I just sit with the Chumash and just read the letters over and over again? Like, what's, what's, the, what's, what's the point of doing anything else then? Once I appreciate that, right? And so you see, in other words, the Hasidic the, the question of why study a deeper level of Torah is a different kind of a question. It's not taken for granted that the thing that's more selective, the thing that's higher to achieve, is necessarily more profound or more, more important. Okay. <coughs> Fine. So this love, it's accessible to everybody. That means that it's coming from a deeper place. It's a more profound. It achieves more. And namely... The hidden love in the heart of all Jews, which is an inheritance to us from our patriarchs. Okay. So the idea is that we inherited a love of Hashem from the patriarchs, from the forefathers. And if all we just knew how to do was tap into that love that we already have, then voila, we could be doing Torah and mitzvahs, observing and practicing the commandments with passionate love and fear of Hashem as is required without having to resort to any contemplation in his greatness. Simple enough? Okay. The layout of the next few chapters is as follows. Chapter 18 and 19 are going to be an examination of this this idea of the inherited love, a love that we inherit. Okay? After that, we are going to take a detour. And by we, I mean whoever happens to be here, whenever we do that. Um... And we are going to discuss the unity of God as understood by Hasidus from a particular perspective. And that's going to take us chapters 21 and 20, sorry, 20 and 21 and 22. Once we've done that, we are then going to have a chapter explain to us what it means to do a mitzvah in the context of the unity of God. Then we're going to have a chapter what it means to sin in the context of the unity of God. And once we understand what the nature of this love we've inherited is, the nature of God's unity, and what it means to observe a mitzvah and transgress a sin, then tying that all together will become very clear that any Jew that has any kind of self-awareness of these things within themselves and is not willing to engage in some kind of disassociation denial is going to realize that every mitzvah and every sin is of absolute existential importance, and that will give them the necessary joy and enthusiasm and commitment and passion and blah, 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 to observe all the commandments with love and fear of Hashem. And the more they integrate that into their way they experience life, the more consistent and natural that becomes. And you do not need to contemplate His greatness whatsoever. That's the kind of overview. Does that sound like an easy thing you can do in like span of five minutes? No. No. So I once asked a chassid, who was born in Russia, old white, you know, guy with white beard, the whole thing. 
and I asked him, I said, honestly, this idea that like you can do, anybody can do this, like it's not like, you know, you can just like one day decide, like I'm going to, in the middle of my temptations and struggles not to sin, I'm just going to like tell myself everything it says in chapters 18 through 25 of Tanya, and then voila, I'm going to feel differently. And his answer was, obviously, the entire approach of Tanya is a slow, methodical approach to change yourself. The thing is that this doesn't depend on contemplation, but it is a, it is, it's a work. So um, an analogy to this would be, um, an athlete, if they're in the middle of a important um, competition, do would it be appropriate for them to stop in the middle of the game and kind of contemplate themselves, themselves, contemplate and reflect to get to a place where they're really into it and they're really, is that going to be an effective way? Like you mentioned in the middle of like the World Cup or the middle of the Super Bowl, right? That's not going to work so well. But does it also mean that just some random Joe Schmo can just walk onto the field and just play at an athlete level? No. How does it work? How does a person play at a professional athlete level? Years and years of training. There's training, right? And the training has multiple things, right? There's the practical training of to condition their body. There's the practical training of learning how to play the game, right? Of the specific techniques. There's the practical training of actually practice playing, right? There's mindset conditioning, right? And all of that comes together that this becomes a, 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 a mode they can just sink into. And that's much more what the altar is going to be describing here. In other words, if you're saying, it's like, I'm struggling with sin, how do I get myself to stop sinning right now? I mean, the basic thing is to recognize it's wrong to sin and stop. You say, well, what makes it wrong to sin? It's like, whatever, whatever you can come up with that makes it wrong enough to stop is good enough. But the, the idea here is, is to change the whole approach to life, but not make it dependent upon these kind of deep contemplations about the, you know, the greatness of God, which we said not everyone is really capable of doing at every point in their life, okay? But it is still a kind of a long, relatively to the previous approach, it's a shorter approach, it's a more direct approach, but overall in life, it's still a long-term approach. It's, it's, it's thinking for the long-term. So there's a lot of understanding yourself, getting to know yourself, understanding what, what mitzvahs are, what it means to be connected to God, right? Inculcating that, being mindful of that. And as that becomes more and more the mode in which you live, then a passionate zeal for Torah mitzvahs becomes something that a person can really be committed to at every single moment. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is not like instant coffee spirituality at all. Okay. So we inherit this love from Hashem. Oh, sorry. We inherit this love from our patriarchs. Uh, the love is for Hashem, directed at Hashem, and it's a love that we inherit from the patriarchs. Before we go forward, I want to just stop and think about this for a second. There are many times we say things and we do not bother to stop and ask ourselves if that thing even makes sense on a basic level. Okay. I have children. I love certain things. I love certain people. Do my children inherit my love? No. Like that's kind of pretty obvious, right? Now, I, for instance, am pretty intellectual by nature. I love engaging things through, through, through making sense and conceptualizing them. 
is that like something that's true of all of my children? No. And that's talking about a particular kind of tendency. Now, I have some very close friends that I love dearly. Do my children love those people? Okay. What do people inherit from their, children, from their parents? Genes. Let's, let's avoid biology. Because when we're understanding Tanya, we have to pretend that we're, 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 we're very scholarly Jews who are living in the middle of agrarian um, czarist Russia, right? So our knowledge of the physical world might be limited, but our understanding about life might be very profound. So what do people inherit from their parents? Habits. What? Habits. Necessarily? Mm-hmm. Necessarily? Mm-hmm. Necessarily? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, like, if somebody is... Um, Okay, so here's the thing. Generational trauma. No, no, no. So, so, so here's, <laughs> here's, here, 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 here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. Values. If you want to go into this, so when we're talking biologically, we speak about things being inherited. Okay. Um, how do you? How does a biologist um, or a psychologist or whatever test for the inheritability of something? The pundit square. The pundit oh square. It's not a pundit square. <laughs> no, how do you test like whether something? What? Like a DNA test. Not really. Actually, very useful. You, you have to first. You have to first figure out if it's inheritable, it's like and then correlate it with DNA. And it's actually very hard to do because most things are not located to single genes. So it's actually. Um, a So what you do, is you find people and you see do they have this quality or not have this quality, right? And then you try and see. Um, how much of how how likely it is that if your parents had that quality, the per- child has that quality, and then you try and control out for other factors. This is why like identical twins separated at birth studies are like the gold standard for this, right? Because all the identical twins share is what they biologically inherit, and nothing else. And if they're raised in totally separate environments, then that's pretty helpful. Okay. And what you end up finding is that most characteristics have some percentage of heritability. What that means is, so you say like, like, you know, if somebody is certain amount, let's say, certain height, someone is tall, do they inherit that from their parents? And like, if you ask the biologist what they'll say is, I don't remember what the numbers are, but let's say it's 70% heritable. What does that mean? That if I know the height of your parents, I can explain your height 70% of your height, but the other 30% variation has to be explained by other factors, okay? Um, that's, a, that's like a very scientific way of thinking about heritability that has developed in the past, let's say, 100 years. Do you think the Alter was referring to this idea of heritability? That were you speaking about it as, to what degree is this related to the biological makeup of your parents, and what degree is it related to outside factors? No, he's talking about something much more. When he's talking about things that you inherit, he's talking about things very simply that they pass on, just like physical inheritance, they pass on from parents to children. Okay. So, if your parents are smart, does that necessarily mean you will be smart? No. no. If your parents love opera, does that necessarily mean you will love opera? No. Okay. So, what is inherited from parents to children? Right. What? Right. Values. Life? Life, life. Life's too vague. I want something concrete. Values? No. If your parents have certain values, that necessarily you will have those values? Religion. religion. If your parents have a religion, necessarily you will have that religion? 
Well, ancestry is like kind of being circular. Yeah. If I descend from the same group of people that my parents descended from, then by definition, <laughs> like we have the same ancestors, right? <laughs> like actual characteristics of people. Like what do what do children inherit from their parents? Attitude. Really? I Not wish. Like, because there's a lot of attitudes I have. I wish some of my kids would have, because that'd be nice. Maybe not. I have some other bad attitudes too. Always. I have seven kids. They're not alike. DNA. We don't know about DNA, right? What do you mean you don't know about it? Because we're talking about. Well, but it's still. It's still like. I guess. Here's the thing. I have seven children. Yeah. What do you know for sure about my seven children? They're yours. Specific characteristics. <laughs> no, we, know, we know a lot, actually. <laughs> what do you know about all seven of them? They're Jewish. They're Jewish. They're kids. They're Israeli. They're your kids. What else do you know? Something about specific. all seven? They yeah. have a last name. What? They have a last name. They have what? Your last name. Characteristics of them. <laughs> oh. One of them is very into Kamara. One of them is not really into Kamara. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, about all of them. We don't. You do? Yeah. Sure you do. Do you have a sister? Yeah. Okay, I know some things about your sister. Do you do? Yes, I do. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you right now easily 10 things about your sister. Okay. Okay. Um, number one, she has a need for social belonging. Am I right? You're talking about all people. That's true. Because guess what is true about all people? All people need social came from someone. They, all people came from other people, and therefore they inherited certain things from their parents. And since, right? So what kinds of things do we inherit from our parents? Social. Normal. <laughs> what are human, the kinds of... What? Human, human desire? Survival. Human, yeah. Survival. yeah just, now you're working off of the example. I'll use other things, yeah. okay? She has two eyes... Parentheses, it's entirely possible something is broken. And she doesn't have two eyes, but assuming nothing is broken, she has two eyes. Yes? Thank God. Okay. Um, also, she speaks a language, unless something is broken. Yes? Yes. Or undeveloped, like maybe she's like a toddler or something. No, okay, yeah. Like, all I have to do... That's going into genetics. You're saying two eyes, that's like... What are you no, I don't have to go into genetics either. That's DNA. Like... They should really like cancel like a lot of classes in high school and teach the genealogy of ideas. Okay, <laughs> DNA is a new idea based on older ideas. The old idea is that things get passed down from parents to children. Some things get passed down. Some things don't necessarily get passed down. Okay, what kinds of things necessarily get passed down? Like basic human qualities. Basic, essential human qualities. Okay. Unless something is broken and then we try and fix it, right? But even then, we understand that like, it's, it's really in there somehow. Yeah. Now, the physical orga- organic chemistry mechanism that facilitates that, nobody knew about until recently. And then they discovered there's this very long, complicated molecule that works off of kind of a language code called DNA. Wonderful, nice. If you don't know that, it still doesn't change the fact that things are... Passed down, right? Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Some things, they may or may not get passed down, right? And so, over time, they kind of work their way out, right? I'm intelligent, right? My intelligence may get passed down, may not get passed down, but you repeat, may get, may not enough times, and what happens? It bleeds out, right? You don't, okay? Height, 
unless you do some selective breeding, right? If all the intelligent people marry each other and keep having children, and then they select the most intelligent among them to marry each other again, you know what you end up with? Super intelligent. You end up with a population that's statistically more intelligent than the general population, right? Okay. But that's because you're breeding for that thing, right? Okay. Like, I don't need to know anything about DNA to understand that idea, right? But the fact that you have to breed for something because you're acknowledging that the thing may or may not get passed down, right? The things that are for sure going to get passed down are the things that are essential and fundamental to whatever kind of being you are. Everything else may or may not get passed down. And even if you do pass it down over one generation, skip down another two or three and... And then some things don't get passed down at all. So intelligence may or may not get passed down to some degree. Height gets passed down to some degree, right? The human need for, for social belonging... That always gets passed down, right? The fact that human beings are, are linguistic creatures, we, we, we engage in language, okay? And then some things just don't get passed down at all. What's something that doesn't get passed down at all? Who your friends are? Favorite food. That's an interesting question. Jury's still out on that, yeah. Yeah, jury's still out about foods. Food preferences. How really? much that's, yeah. So can we broadly make three categories? Things that you really don't inherit from your parents, things you really do inherit from your parents, and things where it's like, it seems to have like, sometimes it gets passed down and sometimes not, but it's not like a given inheritance. Okay. When he says there's a love that we inherit from the patriarchs, what does he mean? Every Jew has inherited this love from the patriarchs. What does that mean? It's like a basic part of like the Jewish people. Right. So now, does that make sense? I know we say it all the time. Does it really make sense that a basic part of the kind of creature you are is that you already love someone specific? Think about that for a moment. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, like, like on the face, right? Say, I love, I don't know, I love Gershon. I just make someone up, right? And my love of Gershon is like an essential part of the kind of being I am, such that when I have children, they will necessarily... Come into being with a love of Gershon. And when they have children, they will necessarily come into being with a love of Gershon, right? Does that like even sound, it sounds silly when you say it that way, right? But if we go around saying, oh, we all have this inherent love of Hashem, aren't you saying the same thing? What does it mean you have inherent love of Hashem? I maybe have inherent capacities and abilities that I could understand, right? Ah, so if we said inherent relationship, that would be nice. But it doesn't say that. It says love. Maybe if, like, everyone's born caring about themselves, and if you are, like, like, you're sort of part... I don't know how to phrase it. Like, if you were part of the Shem, sort of, like, there's a distinction. Like, everyone is born caring about themselves. Okay. Maybe, like, no matter how... No matter your position in life, there's a piece of you that... Will always have like an attachment or a craving, even if you're not aware of it. Craving is not the right word. Maybe craving is the right word. It's like the idea of like the pinsley Yeah, but uh, what I want you to do, like, he's going to spend two chapters trying to explain it. I want you to realize, like, he thinks the idea needs to be explained because he thinks the idea should sound weird. So it's probably a different type of love that they had than just like a friend. To right, in other words, Let's go back to, I, I come to know God. And as much as I know God, God seems great, amazing, wonderful. God speaks to me and therefore I love him. Great, fine. I have a child. Do they love God because of that? 
Why even unconsciously? Because I like I have a friend named I don't know. I'll make another friend. I have a name friend Ruvain because I have a friend Ruvain and Ruvain means a lot to me. Therefore, my children are going to be born loving Ruvain. It can't like it can't be that kind of a thing, right? But Ruvain didn't create you. Well, like God created you. Ah, but now here's going to be the problem. Okay. If we're talking about the natural affinity of every creature to their creator, does it really make sense to say that this is a hidden love in the heart of all Jews, which is inherited to us from our patriarchs? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what you're saying, maybe it's true. Maybe every created being has a craving to, re- to relate to their creator. Fine, that might be, but that's not what he said. Right. right? That wouldn't be something that is unique to Jews because they have inheritance from the patriarchs. By the way, that idea is true. It does exist. So this does does make reference to it. Every creation has a craving to connect back to their creator in some way. But that's not the same idea. Okay. Okay. The Alter Rebbe actually is going to take this thing and he's going to actually make four questions about this and address each one separately. Okay. But before we go to the question, I just want us to all appreciate that it is a weird thing to say that you inherit a love for someone. But that is what the text is saying. Right? That would make it sound like loving someone specific is like an intrinsic part of the kind of being you are, which is weird. Okay. However, we must first of all preface a clear and precise explanation of the origin and essence of this love, how it became our inheritance, and how awe is also incorporated in it. Okay, how many, <coughs> how many things do we have to understand about this love? Three, four. Four. What are the four things? Origin, essence, and how it became and our inheritance, and how to incorporate it. No, not how to incorporate it. What's the last one? How awe is incorporated into it. Because remember, it says that through this, lo- through this love, we're going to be able to serve Hashem with awe, with love and awe, right? Or love and fear, for fear is a translation. So there are four things that we need to understand. Number one, what is its origin? Number two, what is its essence? Number three, how did it become an inheritance? And number four, how does awe or fear incorporated into it? Okay. I want to explain the questions and I want to answer all four of these questions with regard to the normal love of Hashem. What's the normal love of Hashem? The normal love of Hashem is the love that you create by contemplating Him. The more you know Hashem in a way that resonates with you, the more you love Him, right? So if we're saying this love, we have four questions, that presupposes that the answers to those questions are understood with the regular love. But because love of Hashem through contemplation is something we don't normally experience, we're going to move to just regular love. So I love somebody. What is the origin of my love? Well, good. It is myself. That is true. The problem is there's so many parts of myself. So we need to be more specific. Right? For instance, um, it's probably not coming from the fluid in my eardrums. Or behind my eardrums, right? That is a part of myself, but it's probably not the origin of my love for anybody. 
Well, we have to ask ourselves, if that's the origin of the love, then the mere fact that I have those needs would in and of itself generate the love. Is that true? Because I need something, pick a need. I need validation. Okay. Because I need validation, that's why I love, I don't know, pick a name, um, Shimon. Does that like follow? My need for validation has in and of itself given rise to my love of Shimon. That would be weird, right? So it may depend on a need for validation. It might be incorporated, but that's not the origin of love. Like where in me does that love have root, which is actually a, a, the, the, the literal meaning, the literal word that he uses um, um, when he's asked the question in Hebrew. Um, he asks, what is it? Shirish, literally it's a root. So like, let's say I love somebody on Ruvain. What part of me is the origin, the root of that love? It's not my need for validation, which might be incorporated love, maybe not. We can debate that, you know. That's very poetic. What do you mean by that? He told me that. I don't know. Okay, but just because I said it doesn't mean you should believe it. <laughs> you should subject to what I say to some critical thinking. <laughs> I don't want to answer. Think about it. Is there anybody in your life you love? No. Okay. What part of you is the root, the origin of that love? When you say what part, like, I'm, like, are you talking about, like, physically? No, or, no. Like, in our no. nature? In our nature, in our psyche, you know, something like that. Like, when you propose needs, that was a very good suggestion, just isn't true, because my, my needs in and of themselves do not give rise what to love. What would be a word for just the mere fact that, that you're, you're used to that person being in your life every day, you don't know mm, really mm. So there's some, okay, okay, that, that is, what's it? now we're, right, there is a kind of love. Well, except for right now that this is a kind of love. We could debate whether it's truly love or not, but for anyone, there's a kind of love that comes because this person is a regular fixture in your life. Okay. Okay. So you have a certain familiarity with that person, yes? You're used to that person. There's a certain comfort with that person, right? And that gives rise to some feelings which we're going to call, for argument's sake, a kind of love, yeah? Yeah? Okay. Give me another example of love. Now, we, that, that's good. Give me another example of love and what might be in its origin. And see if we can kind of figure out where love originates in, in us. The desire to give. So if you desire to give to somebody, therefore... You love them. Give. And you're giving your love, you're... But you can't, but now you just stuck love in the beginning. I want to get the love. Right, right. Like you're giving a part of yourself? You're giving a part of yourself because you love? I understand there's a correlation between (laughs) a lot of giving and love, but I just want to know, is it like if I give a lot, then I'll love a person? Does that, does that work? Does it always work that way? The act of, in fact, often giving leads to resentment. Mm-hmm. You want to hear a little dirty secret? Many parents, as much as they develop love for their children, also develop hate. 
resentments to their children. You know why? Can you imagine spending 20 years of your life giving to someone else on their terms? Right? You have to deal with... Right? And, and like, now be honest with yourself, how selfless are you, right? Do you magically become selfless when you become a parent? You have love, but like, the fact that like it's inconvenient demands of you, like, so those are things that parents have to deal with in themselves and have to kind of come to, you know, work on themselves, come to integrate, whatever, right? I'm sure you've all seen parents get exasperated with their children in the grocery store. Oh, okay. happens. Okay. So giving does not necessarily... Right. Maybe giving in a certain way for certain things, that might be giving in and of itself is just an action. It can really... The familiarity was good. What else? There are other... I mean, you guys do love people in your lives, right? Okay. Why? You have something in common with them? Oh, you have something in common with them, right? right? A sense of commonality. Right? What else? You invested in their relationships? Okay. You, you invested in the relationship, but you didn't love them. You invested in the relationship, and now it's all that you love them. That's what you're saying? Because we want the origin of love. We want the source of love. We want the root of the love, right? If we already have love, then we're already talking too late to down, to downstream. We want to go like way back upstream to like the... Them? You enjoy being around them, right? Okay, that's enough. There's a enjoyment of being around somebody. There is a comfort and a familiarity that comes right from, right? There is a sense of commonality. What do those things have in common? They're created. They're not made. They're definitely created. But what do they have? Like, 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 what part of you do those things... All things you like and desire. They all work off of your desires. What else do they have in common? They all require you to have what with the other person? A connection. More specific. Common ground. Oh, like a two, it's a two-way relationship. Not necessarily. Sometimes we love people and they don't love us back. Something in it that you can't describe. They all require that you have some kind of experience and awareness of the other person. Mm. Right? Can you, be, can you have a sense of familiarity and comfort with the person's presence if you are completely oblivious to the fact that they're there? Really? There's somebody you're just not aware they're even there in part of your life. Like you just never realize that they exist. Yeah. That they exist as a person or that they exist in the moment? Like, okay. No, they exist as a person at all. Like not that you. Like you wouldn't, right? Or like to have a sense that you have something in common, right? To realize you enjoy being around their presence. All those require some kind of awareness of them, Right? So in my ability to be aware of somebody else, right, and process that awareness, that's where my love gets its origins from. It's the root of the love. That's a complex process. By the way, if you would like to, be, if you would like to love somebody more, what should you do? Be more aware of them. Be more aware of them, but in the right way. Because not all awareness needs love, right? There's certain ways of being aware of people, right? This is important because um, you're going to get married. Will you always feel love to your husband? Will you always feel love to your relatives? Do you have a sense you probably should try to love them? So you should try to be aware of them in the kinds of ways that help you generate feelings of love. 
Does that sound vaguely similar to what we talked about previously about contemplating Hashem's greatness? The origins of love in a human being are the awareness of the other. Now, again, that's also the origins of hate and resentment and most other emotional experiences towards the other person. So you have to be careful the way you choose to be aware of them, right? If you choose to constantly be aware of your husband's flaws and, um, and, and failures, you're probably not going to engender feelings of love, right? That make sense? Okay. So now, the fact that he's asking this question, what does that tell us about this innate love that we've all inherited from the patriarchs? Is this love coming from our awareness of God? No, because no, if it was, you wouldn't have a question where it's the origin, right? Standardly, love, the origin of love comes from awareness. And again, awareness, a specific kind of awareness. Awareness where you see the kind of the positivity, the connection, right? The, 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 the resonance between you and someone else. I don't know. The way your windows of your souls align. It's a good line. Okay. Um, <coughs> what is the essence of love in general? Now, I have to be frank with you. The Hebrew word here that's actually he uses is inyan. And I, I, I quibble over translating inyan as essence. Um, I'm going to give you the exam, an example of how the word, what the word Indian means, and then we can try and figure out what English would want to use for this, okay? So, the Indian of speech, you know, speech, the Indian of speech is to make it so that others can understand you. So if I speak and you do not understand my intent, my speech is a failure. Even if I feel like I did a good job of expressing myself, it doesn't matter because the Indian of speech is. What's the Indian of speech? What did I just say? What is it? Understand. Who's understanding? The other. The other's understanding. Okay. So how? What English word or phrase would you substitute there for the for the Hebrew word Indian in that context? Goal. The goal. goal. That's a good goal. So that's more what he's getting at. The, what is the goal? So his question is, what's the goal of this love? Now, let's ask in general. If I love somebody, what's the goal of the love? Connection. What? What did you say? Connection. Let's be more specific. If I love somebody, generally speaking, what that, that love means I'm pursuing something. There's, right, and I can feel like I've attained it or I haven't attained it, right? Connection, I'm not saying connection is wrong, I just feel connection is too vague. I want something more specific. Like the ability to understand the person? That's too specific because that's not always true. That's like, I wouldn't edit some love that's like that, but not always. Like, I don't know, like, you know, some love, like the understanding person, like, yeah, not necessarily. Is it just love? No, it's, I mean... You need to, like, to bring out, like, better qualities in each other. Well, closeness? Closeness. Yeah. Now, that's often facilitated by bringing out better parts of ourselves. That's often facilitated by knowing what's going on inside the other person, right? By the way, but closeness is a very specific kind of connection. Now, within closeness, different kind of closeness, right? The closeness that 
you know, people that have struggled together in building something achieve is a different kind of closeness than a romantic closeness, right? Which is different than the closeness of maybe a teacher and a student, right? But if I love somebody, what goal am I after? A kind of closeness, right? Where my life becomes more intermingled with their life. Their life becomes more intermingled with my life. Now that, that itself comes in different flavors and has different specifics, right? Which is why love is like a, a smorgasbord. It's amazing. There's so many kinds of love. Right? Someone says, like, I really love you. But, like, you stay over there and I'll stay over here. You do your thing and I'll do my thing. Like, I don't really want us to be too involved with each other. Do those two things make sense? That you love the person and you want that? No. Okay. Here's an example of two conflicting parental emotions. Love of children and care for children. Why are those conflicting emotions? Tough love. What do, what do children need? Tough love. Discipline? <laughs> love and... Uh, maybe. They don't always need discipline. Refinement? Maybe. And care? I mean, I mean they, it's like, children... Let me put it this way. Not all children need discipline. Let me put it this way. Um, some children are just naturally more disciplined than others, right? There's something all children need from their parents. Love. Other than love. They need shelter. Security. Money. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. What else? None of those things contradict love. Basic survival needs that they can't provide for themselves. Okay. What else? Okay. Something's going to contradict love. They eventually need independence. Independence. Mm-hmm. Human beings thrive as they become more independent, and they suffer as that independence is squashed or prevented from developing. Right. You can't have independence thrust upon a person too early, but okay, fine, right? So, the child needs more independence, but you love them. What does loving mean? What's your goal when you love someone? Yes, you want to be more intermingled and more intermeshed. You see you're going to have a problem here? So are you saying closeness is not the goal? No, closeness is the goal of the love. It's not just the goal, right? Like, for instance... You might love your child in the sense that you really want to be close to them, so you really want to schmooze them and talk about what's going on and how things feel, right? right. Um, but what does the child need? They need independence. Independence means they doesn't necessarily mean that that you shouldn't talk to them. It means that that if they need to process things with you, you're there to process. But like you're not, right? It's not about your desire to be intermingled with their life, right? Now you can see how a parent can like love the child, and that would make them want to like. You came home from this trip. Let's sit and talk about it because I love you. I want to be part of your life. And the child's like, it's my trip. Let me process my way. If I need your help, if I need your assistance, I will come and I will talk to you. If not, then leave me alone, right? You're like, you're like compassion, care, and concern for someone's well-being and love are not always in perfect alignment with each other. Does that make sense? Like, that's why teenagers are so much fun. Right, okay. Good? Okay. What's the goal of this love? The inherent love. Every Jew deep down has this inherent love for Hashem. What's the goal of that love? Is that goal of that love to be closer to Hashem and have Hashem more involved in our life? And us to be more involved in Him? If that were the case, would He be asking what's the, what's the goal of the love? So normal love, its origin is my awareness of the other person in a kind of positive light that resonates with me. 
And the goal of that love is to have a more enmeshed and intermingled closeness with the other. Again, the specifics of that vary depending on what kind of positivity you see, right? right. But this kind of love, does it come from the same part of us? Does it have the same agenda, the same goal? In fact, so that's going to be interesting. In what sense is it even love, right? It, it has a lo- it's love because of some kind of similarity to regular love, but it's very different. Is that because our goal is kind of like, it's bittal? Like in relation to Hashem? Versus like with like somebody else, like you want to be close to the person. No, no, because, like, because even when you contemplate the greatness of Hashem, what is the goal of the love that you generate? To be close to Hashem. You still want to be close to Hashem. You want to be more involved with Hashem. Hashem be more involved with you. So, and even that is going to be described as a kind of bittal. Okay. It still fits into In fact, the more you think about it, right, you have to remove some of the barriers between each other in order to be close, right? And, you know, there's a Hebrew word for getting rid of stuff. Anyone know that Hebrew word for getting rid of stuff? Bittal. Levatel means to remove, to negate, to get rid of, right? So in order to be closer to somebody, to have me be more involved in their life, them more in real life, I have to get rid of the things that are walls and barriers between us, okay? So like the idea of bittal in that sense is not like, ooh, because it's God. But here, whatever this love is, and he's gonna, it doesn't have that same kind of a goal. It's not like, ooh, I love Hashem and therefore I want to be closer to him. That's not what this love is. It, no, I don't love him because I, I'm aware of him and I don't want, and it's not I want to be close to him because I love him. So whatever we mean here by love, we're meaning something very different. Okay. How do we inherit love to others? And I think we've already discussed this previously. Do we inherit love to others? No. So like, the answer to this question is just like you don't, you don't inherit love. If, if you're... If your parents love somebody, even if that somebody is God, because they have this great awareness for God and really want to be close to Hashem in their life, doesn't mean you inherit that love. And yet here? Apparently we do. We do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And finally, how do we incorporate, and I'm going to use the word fear, because fear is a more accurate translation of the word. How does fear incorporate into it? So normally, how is fear incorporated into love? And the answer to that is it's not. So this is a little bit counterintuitive, but once I explain it, hopefully it'll make some sense. If I love something, do I necessarily have fear of losing that thing? Yeah? And conversely, if I necessarily, if I fear losing something, does it necessarily mean I have, I have love for the thing? No. no. Let's do the first one. If I love money, do I necessarily have fear of losing money? Yes. No. If you love money, then wouldn't you be scared to lose it? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. This is not true. It's, it's, It's empirically not true. How many people make wildly unsafe business decisions? out of love for money with no regard to the possibility? Because here's the thing. This is, this is the thing. We're talking about an emotion rather than a value. Now, as you were asked me, if I love money, does that mean I value having money? Does that also mean I value not losing money? Because we're talking about emotion. Right. In fact, it's usually not the case. 
right? You know, a good way, a savvy business person sees that somebody is maybe not a good business partner is they're way too enthusiastic about how this is an opportunity to make money and this is an opportunity to make money and this is an opportunity to make money. All they can see is the potential opportunities to make money because they're in love with making money. What are they not seeing? The risks. And they don't feel any fear of losing money. Do you really want to go into business with such a person? Now, conversely, there are people who all they see are, right? And they're afraid. And those people like, you know, the extreme, they keep their money hidden under the mattress and they never make any money either, right? These are actually conflicting emotions and having one does not give you the other. In fact, because they're conflicting emotions, it requires a current amount of maturity to be able to have both. One does not entail the other. The, the, the mistake that people are making is that they're, they're not talking about the emotional experience. They're talking about like, you know, the value. If you value having money, you also value not losing money. Yes, that, that, that goes together. But if what you are experiencing is the desire, the craving to make more money, you are not at that same time experiencing the fear of losing money. They feel differently. They pull you in different directions. Right? And it takes a lot of emotional maturity to be able to allow yourself to experience both of them in some limited measure to function. Okay? What about... Um, <coughs> um, most, I think most parents value their children not getting hurt. Yeah. Um, and I think most parents value their children thriving and flourishing. I think those kind of go together on the values level. What happens if a parent is very afraid of the harm that could fall their, befall their child? They start sheltering the child. And what happens to the child then? They lose their independence. And do they develop the opportunities to grow and thrive? Conversely, what happens if a parent can only... Only, only the, the, the notion that their child is experiencing and there's adversity and they're growing and look, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and they're just, you know, they're, they're probably, they, that, that can get to be pretty reckless, right? These emotions pull you in. In opposite directions. Yeah. You see how like love and fear, they don't, as emotional things, they don't really entail each other. The more a person is afraid of a negative thing, it's very hard to feel craving and desire and, and, and all those kinds of other energies that we have of love and it puts you in a different space. Again, the underlying things you care about and your values might justify both love and fear. But that's a different level. That's not the emotional space we're talking about. And in fact, if you're contemplating the greatness of Hashem such that it brings you to love, that's going to come at expense of your your Shemaim, your fear of Hashem. And if you contemplate Hashem such it brings to your Shemaim, fear of heaven, it's going to come at the expense of your love. And so if you want to cultivate both, you're going to have to be somewhat sophisticated and mature in how to manage your contemplation, your emotional experiences to have just about just enough of each. And here he's saying, oh, no, no, you tap into this love and you magically get fear along with it too. Again, not a value, an experience. So, given these four questions, does the love that we're talking about that every Jew inherits, does it sound like what we normally think of as love? Right? Yeah. It doesn't come from our awareness of, of, of the beloved, Ay Hashem. Its goal is not closeness with the beloved, Ay Hashem. Right? It's something that you inherit. It's an intrinsic part of your being. Right? 
And when it's manifest, it entails experiences of fear automatically, unlike normal, normal experiences of love. So, and yet, despite all of that, it still can be broadly described as love. So it's on some fundamental level similar enough to what we know as love, such that it's justified to call it love. But on the other hand, it's really fundamentally different, such that we don't really understand what it is. Now, the way the chapter is going to work is he's going to talk about the inheritance and the origin of the love in chapter 18. And in chapter 19, he's going to speak about the kind of the goal of the love and how it entails fear. And so by the end of these two chapters, we'll have a better description, a better sense of what we mean by this love. Okay? So now, does Tanya say that deep down inside each and every one of us has a love for Hashem the way we love others? No. 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 But yet we, but it's also not saying that deep down inside we have a capacity to love God that we just need to work on because like, that we knew already, right? There's an actual love, but it's very, very different from what we're used to thinking of as love. Okay, questions? I don't fully understand. I mean, I guess I'm sure we're going to go into it, but I don't really understand how like these loves, like do they function separately? Like do they work together? Like are they Which really love? the same thing? The, the love that's inherent and the love inherent, that, yeah. Yeah, they're very different. Okay. They're very different. Do they come from different places? They do. The love that comes that's inherent, we don't know where it comes from, but it doesn't come from an awareness of Hashem. Okay. And the love that is that that comes from contemplation comes from an awareness of Hashem that you have to cultivate, just like every okay. other love we're familiar with. I have a question about like just the fear aspect real quick. Um, it's not really related to the direction we're going, but what if someone couldn't you say someone would fear losing their parent as a result of how much love they have for their parent? You could, and that may in fact be a good analogy, but we would have to understand what's happening there that is different than normal fear and love, because normal fear doesn't really work that way. I mean, the, my favorite example of this is called teenage boys who experience very little fear of losing things and a lot of love of things. And you think, well, if it's so important to you, like, and like there's this disconnect. And you have the reverse. You have people that like, like sometimes you see this, like uh, I, one of my kids, that they're very afraid of losing stuff. They're just, they're afraid, not like losing, like missing things. They're afraid of like, they're afraid of, of, of not having things. Now, if they're afraid of not having things, it means you think that they would actually like desire these things, right? But the answer is no. They're so afraid of not having, right, that it squashes any experiences of desire, so there's no motivation to go do anything. Right? And that's like not a good place to be. You know, like, like it, it is complicated, right? And sometimes we do see that love actually carried with it some kind of fear. Um, and maybe like a love of a parent is like that, but then you'd have to understand if that's true, what is it about that is true, and, may, and how does that help us understand what's going on here? So um, I just think it's important to realize that, in other words, emotions are experiences rather than just rational consequences of certain attitudes. The fact that I am in favor of having money necessarily entails that I am in, not in favor of losing money, but the experience of craving and desiring money is very different and contrary to the experience of fearing losing money 
And again, think about in business. Like some people like have too much of one, not enough of the other, and you wouldn't want to be business partners with either such person. Yeah. If it's not comparable at all to any love that we understand, why do we still call it love? <coughs> well, answer for right now, since we don't really know what it is and know to describe it enough, I don't really have a way of answering it. So that's what I would say now. But what I'll say later is like this. Sometimes what we mean by things is more than just how we conceptualize it, how we're used to it. Okay, a very, very simple thing what I mean is like this. If I were to say um, that I know Hashem can see me. Do I mean what I say? That I know Hashem can see me? I guess no. I don't really mean it? Like not literally? Or not, I didn't add, why are you adding the words literally, not literally? Do I mean it or not mean it? Yeah. I do mean it. Okay. I do mean it. But do I mean that Hashem is having the experiences of color in his psyche and interpreting those to make sense of what's going on in my life? Is that what I meant? No. No. I meant something else by seeing, right? Because now let's go back. Is there, if, if I were to say that you see me, right? Even though I really do think you're having experiences of color that you're making sense of, what do I really mean by that? Do I just mean that? I just mean you're having experiences of color that you make sense of? Or what do I mean by that if I say, I know you can see me? What do I mean by that? You mean past, you see her past just the like physical colored vision of seeing her. No, so I know that you see me. I'm doing it specifically that way. I know that I say, I know you see me. What do I mean by that? I, I do realize that that involves like you having experiences of colors and making sense of them in your mind. I get that, but is that all I meant? Making an inference of my reality? Right, that there's some kind of like, my existence has some kind of, of direct direct significance in your sense of what reality is, right? And I therefore feel I have some kind of standing vis-a-vis you, and I feel therefore maybe I ought to act. Like, like, and all of that I meant by God also, right? I just don't think it works through colors. So maybe what we mean by love is something more fundamental and deeper than all the forms of love we're used to. And if we know what we mean by that, we'll see, oh, this is love and that is love, even though it looks very different. You see what I'm saying? Like, and I'm specifically not using the term metaphor. That some, there's, the, there's the form that I'm used to seeing something in, and then there's what it actually is. If, I'm, if the, every love that I'm used to thinking about is a love that begins with my awareness of somebody else, its goal is to be closer to that other someone else. It's not something you can pass on to your children just like in, in this way of inheritance, right? Right? And it's a distinct experience than experiences of fear. Right? It doesn't really... Like, okay, well, if, if that's the only form I know love in, then, then, then this is not love. But if maybe that's just a form of love, and really by love, I, and, 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 and what, it, what love really is is not defined by that form, then maybe when I see love in a different form, I recognize, oh, that's also love. It's just a different kind of love. And that's the answer that we'll eventually have. Like how it transforms. 
Yeah, it transforms, it transcends the structure of what we're used to seeing as love. But it still means the same thing. Would you say that's the more, that's a more truer kind of love? And you may even then say that that's actually a truer kind of love because it's a love with less of that artificial structure that we're used to. In fact, I might say that Hashem seeing me is a truer seeing of me than you're seeing of me because it's not mediated with all this like optic stuff that's really unnecessary in the grand scheme of things. So that's eventually what I say. But I say right now, I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about, so let's wait and see. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. Pun intended.